Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We are recording this podcast on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We are a revolutionary socialist podcast and today we're celebrating a special anniversary and that is one year of Red Flag Radio podcast. And um, it's been quite the year, 2020, to be running a podcast and talking about politics and revolutionary socialist politics, no less. And um, so today's live show, we are joined, and so we're sort of simultaneously recording this episode and in a Zoom meeting with a bunch of fans of the show uh, who are here to cheer us along as we record this special episode. So welcome to those live audience members. Thank you for being here. It's really nice to have other people uh, involved in this. And of course, all of the people who are listening to the recording of this um, episode and all of our patrons who have supported us uh, through this year and um, we'll talk a bit more about that as we go along. The theme for today is reasons to be a revolutionary socialist and I called it 2020 reasons to be a revolutionary socialist but that's probably like way too many to fit into a sort of 40-minute podcast. So um, we might not even get to 20 but we're going to have a go at talking about some and being um, 2020, it's a year I think where people are feeling like the world has been turned upside down somewhat, So, or a lot in fact. Um, so there's probably some reasons and we've got some fantastic guests uh, here to talk about those reasons with us and they are all, of course, our unofficial official friends of the show too. Um, so we have Louise O'Shea who's uh, one of the contributing editors of Red Flag Newspaper from which this podcast um, gets its name with like the sibling podcast to the newspaper, the sort of younger, cooler, no, not really, the, the just the different sibling um, <laughs> to the print and website version of Red Flag, which everyone, of course, would be familiar with. We have Emma Norton, we have Sagar Sanyal, we have Jerem Small, and of course, um, as always, Liam Ward on the dials if we were on radio. Um, doing all of the tech and co-hosting the show. Though, Liam, in the past few episodes, you've been fairly quiet. You've been a bit busy doing some political work, I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, like not at the time. It's not like I've been distracted while you're while you're talking. No, you're, and I'm quite, doing you're very present when we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'll, I've. Uh, I, I feel like I'm being admonished, but yeah, I'll speak up. Well, no, you're I've got- not. I'm just saying today you're going to have a bit more to say. It's going to be good for sure because people like the sound of your voice. We've had feedback on it, really? so you know. Yep. Or Liam, <laughs> which ward is your favourite? You know, email in now um, with your reviews. Uh, actually, do give us reviews for the podcast on um, whichever platform you use. And I know that in Apple Podcasts, like people look at the reviews to figure out whether they want to listen to a show or not. And they do that on Podbeam as well and other places. So you might think, oh, I really like the show. And other people need to know about that and why you like it. And I've been going through some of the stats um, in advance of this one-year anniversary, and it's actually pretty amazing to look at where we have listeners around the world. Um, 
The second biggest country we have listeners in is the United States. Um, seems like we have a few dozen regular listeners from the United States, which is exciting. As revolutionary socialists, obviously, it's a pretty important place in international politics, and especially now. And we have listeners from the UK. We have quite a number of listeners regularly from India. Um, and then we have listeners from Canada, Germany, Ireland, Japan, Hong Kong, which is quite amazing considering what's been going on there, that people want to listen to stuff that we have to say about politics. We even have listeners in Tunisia, um, the Seychelles, apparently. <laughs> uh, people are tuning into Red Flag Radio. So, uh, so yeah, it's certainly um, reaching places that we weren't expecting Red Flag Radio to reach and an audience, I think, of people who are really wanting to grapple with some serious questions. And so we'll talk about some of our favorite episodes as well, I reckon, um, today. So let's begin um, with a reason to be a revolutionary socialist in 2020 with Louise. Louise, you've had a hectic year editing the newspaper. Mm. What are your reflections? Um, well, at the risk of being a bit obvious and predictable, I have to say uh, the pandemic itself. Um, not that a reason to be a socialist is being cooped up in your house for four months or whatever it was on end that we had to endure in Melbourne, but more that, I mean, like every crisis under capitalism, it was at, um, at its heart the counterposition between people's lives and the profit-driven economy was um, starkly posed, I and mean, it's the same at the, at, in wars and um, other previous major economic crises of capitalism. But in the pa specific pandemic crisis, it was so starkly, you know, there wasn't sort of any um, any other way it was dressed up like there is during um, wars. Um, it was just really there's this disease that is um, has a very high um, casualty rate and governments are faced with the question of what are they going to do about it and for every government in the world it was about how much are they willing to compromise the all-important economy and um, businesses making profits versus um, ensuring people stay healthy the disease's uh, impact is minimized and people are kept safe and I think the experience we've gone through in Australia like unfortunately so few other countries um, uh, where for for once like governments tended to do the right thing and put people's lives and health first has shown how effective that is um, and in places where they haven't you know it's been absolutely disastrous and taken a, an enormous human toll um, and so I think yeah that's um, we shouldn't forget that experience we shouldn't forget who it was that was campaigning to keep business open um, that the, all the major employer and business groups in Australia opposed um, what the governments did to keep people, what the Labor government in Victoria in particular did to keep people safe, like Alan Joyce from Qantas took out full-page ads in the paper about um, travel must be reopened and um, towards the end of the lockdown, business was threatening to just defy the government's health measures and restart the economy come hell or high water. Um, None of this should be forgotten. I mean, it's not as though big business was popular before the pandemic, but the the way that it's tested individuals and social um, forces, organisations, um, 
will leave a residue for a long time, like what side people took. Um, and it's not just big business either. Like, you know, there was an absolute conga line of small businesses complaining about not being able to wax people's legs, you know, that all-important um, social service um, who, you know, couldn't see past their own narrow little um, uh, survival when, you know, at the same time there was a hugely generous program of um, subsidies and whatever for business, almost all of which was targeted at business. Like workers did benefit through things like um, JobKeeper, but it was very much um, centred through business. Business received the money to keep to subsidise people's wages while they had to shut down or whatever. And so, you know, the amount of whinging you got from business kind of just showed like they will accept no incursion mm. uh, into um, their profit making even when it's something as basic as people's lives and um, health. So, you know, I think it really just demonstrated so much. And even though, you know, we're all sitting at home trying to digest the lessons of it, um, I think, you know, it'll it'll remain in people's consciousness, this experience. Yeah, definitely. And it's sort of like, you know, the, the overarching thing that's happened in 2020 started in, you know, started to unfold in February coming out of um, the Chinese experience that no one ever thought would somehow exit China. And then it's this international experience that's going to be ongoing. And so it's going to be a theme of the podcast discussions, I think, not just ending because in Victoria we've had a certain number of days without a case or whatever. And I think, yeah, definitely um, points to the priorities of the system. Um, Cigar, what do you have as your reason to be a revolutionary socialist? Well, I was just listening back to some of the early podcast episodes that RFR did, and quite a few at the start in December and January were on the increasing climate change marches around the world, and then the bushfires hitting in Australia. And really, for, cli- for me, climate change is a good reason to be a revolutionary socialist and to get organized. So one thing we've seen in 2020 is lots of social movements. So that's no longer a new thing. But what, is, what we have to do beyond just social movements is to understand what kind of social movements and what can really take us forward in addressing climate change. And the central issue for me is that a system of international competition between capitals and nation states is not going to give up the bases of power that are its competitive edge, right? So things like um, digging up oil and coal, um, building new ports and infrastructure, all of that to compete with rival nation states. Um, I think something we've seen over the past year is some countries are doing a bit of, you know, we're going to expand renewable energy and so on. But it's important not to get distracted by it because while those things are happening for a few countries, those same countries retain their investments in fossil fuel extraction, in expanding fossil fuel extraction. So it's not like the renewable stuff is happening as a substitute for the use of fossil fuels. It's happening alongside it. And that tells us all the more that simply waiting for people at the top to read more of the arguments of why climate change is serious and we should do something about it, that's not going to work. They're not going to stop doing the things they're doing just because they read some of these arguments. 
So what we need is increasingly pressure, not just from people below, but people who understand why um, it's capitalism itself that's the problem and why the only thing that can push back against it is to organize not just a movement from below, but a movement of the working class, of the people who can reorganize society in a way that runs along different laws of, laws of social um, subsistence and change. Mm. Yeah. And that is, I mean, it's sort of like, how could anything possibly um, take our attention away from climate change? And then you had this pandemic that was just like, oh, well, if it, there could only be sort of a few major events that would take away our attention from climate change. You'd think some kind of war, war, war breaking out or, yeah, who would have thought a pandemic? But, you know, those things are connected as well. And I think talking about the connections and and drawing out some of those um lessons as well as kind of one of the projects of the podcast and I think you know if people listen to more than one episode of the podcast you start to see how we try to connect these things together um Emma you've been on a couple of podcasts varying topics you've talked about the police and you've talked about Trotsky um what's your reason for being revolutionary socialist are you going to say Trotsky no no, he's one of them, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely more than 20 reasons, but I've had to narrow it down to one, I guess. Um, just I've been thinking the last week, you know, reading the horrific Brereton report uh, and the revelations about the SAS soldiers. Um, just been thinking that, like, the fight to win socialism isn't just about winning a better world. That's the key thing that it's about. But for me, it's also kind of about avenging these centuries of you know, murder, mass murder and slaughter that have uh, been done in the name of capitalist profits and empire building. Um, and I think Australia, sort of more than most other countries, kind of uh, has been in for all of that slaughter and, um, you know, getting its hands dirty. And I think the some of the revelations in the SAS, uh, sorry, the Brereton Report really show that, you know, Australia's elite psychopathic killers basically have been committing uh, war crimes in this horrifically unjust war. Um, and I think one thing to say is that the media and the upper echelons of the military establishment and the government have been engaged for the last few days in a cover-up, well, not just the last few days, but, you know, years. Um, even though it's kind of all they can talk about at the moment, the way they talk about it, uh, I think, still constitutes uh, an attempt to cover up what has really happened and why. Um, you know, they've just been talking about it's just the lower ranks of this elite force that carried out these war crimes, you know, anyone... Uh, who's a sort of general or a commander, anyone at the top, um, just definitely didn't know they were happening. Uh, they've also said that the problem is just this weird warrior culture, or I think one of the worst headlines I saw called it a rock star culture. Um, you know, rock stars can be odious, but I don't think they're going and slitting the throats of 14-year-olds and dumping their bodies in rivers. Um, what I think the culture uh, that definitely does exist in the SAS reflects is uh, what they were trained to do, which is carry out unjust wars like the war in Afghanistan in the name of, um, for that war in particular, and Iraq, you know, expanding the influence of America and its allies across the Middle East, uh, regardless of the cost in millions of lives. Um, I think that's important to stand against because in Australia, the celebration of war is really extreme. You know, we spend more money than pretty much any country on celebrating World War I. Um, I was listening to a uh, very old speech that Julia Gillard gave when she was Prime Minister where she um, 
celebrated the colonial wars, which most people probably don't even think about, but, you know, it's a history that goes way back to the 19th century in Australia. Um, and I think, you know, part of why I wake up every day and want to be a socialist is to right those um, historic wrongs. And you can't bring back uh, those people, those hundreds of thousands of people that were murdered in uh, the Middle East for capitalist profits, but you can be part of a fight to end the system that led to that uh, and make sure that nothing like that ever happens again. And I just think it's really important for left-wing people to um, to do that because we live in a dangerous world where I think every day, you know, the potential for war escalates in some ways. You have China and America facing off against each other. And if there's a conflagration between those two great capitalist superpowers, that will drag uh, the whole world into um, into what could be a horrific bloodbath. And I think the task of the left and socialists is to constantly oppose all of that and to fight for a world where uh, that never happens. Mm. And actually, that's a good thought for a, an episode about explaining imperialism, because I think there are a lot of different interpretations of what that term means. Um, and it's kind of used frequently around the left, but it, it can mean different things. And I think a lot of people also um, might be interested in kind of Australia's role. Is it an imperialist country? What role does it play? And what what is the role of socialists in standing up against Australian imperialism in particular? And some of the things that have happened in the region, you know, around Australia, not that it's really around Australia, but, you know, the region that Australia is in. Um, yeah, I reckon that would be a really excellent topic. And yeah, I mean, if war is not enough to make you want to change the system, I'm not sure what else <laughs> there could be. Our comrades the Jerem, what are your thoughts on your experiences of 2020 and what makes you continue to want to be a revolutionary socialist? Mm, could take a while, eh? I'll go with I'll go with climate change. Partly, I mean, just the intensity of it, and people would have seen the stuff from the Bureau of Meteorology a week or two back about you know we're off every conceivable chart for temperature, for CO two, for rain, you, know, you name it. Like you know, here it is. Um, so there's the urgency of the problem. Also, because like I guess I've got it in mind at the moment. I've had um, a bit of a busy year, sort of running to catch up with all the various comrades, especially you know you, Ros and Liam, and the NTU and the you know different adventures that you've had but at the like at the end of the last bloody apocalyptic event the bushfires and just as we were tipping into this one I went for a drive through Latrobe Valley up to Wollongong and the Hunter Valley talking to power workers coal workers and steel workers about climate change because one of the main narratives coming out of the 2019 election um, from both Labor and Liberal and accepted by sections of the left is that basically the conservative position, the do-nothing position on climate change has got a lock on any blue-collar worker who lives within about 500 kilometres of a coal mine, which is, I mean, it's a ridiculous idea in all sorts of ways. Like Labor lost the last election because they couldn't take a seat in suburban friggin' Melbourne or South Australia, which doesn't even have a coal industry, let alone, you know, up in the Hunter or Queensland or whatever. But it was just like right finally, you know, wrote up the notes from, from the trip, but finally turning it into an article for the summer edition of Red Flag. And so looking at it all again and, and trying to make sense of it, just like, like the, the Hunter Valley especially, you don't have to work too hard to find people that know exactly what's going on. Like I, in the article I talk about 
um, an afternoon I had um, sitting chatting with a, a guy who'd fought the bush uh, fought the bushfires for four months. Um, they got to just you know the ridge sort of you know the next one over from where we were sitting. Um, and, you know, he was trying to work out ways to sort of push back against the climate denialism that's fed from Scott Morrison and Murdoch and, of course, is picked up by members of his brigade. Um, a, a, coal, a coal miner, a coal, coal mine worker who works in the place and was just telling me about the sort of banter between, you know, yeah, there's one guy who's a hardcore One Nation supporter. Um, there's another one who's green. Um, you know, everyone hangs shit on each other. And I sort of asked him, oh, look, okay, when the banter comes around to climate change, how many of of your workmates would accept the science that, you know, it's um, human anthropogenic climate change, you know, it's humans causing all this trouble. I sort of thought for a second and he said, oh, look, I don't think any of the guys under 40 would doubt the science. And I'm like, oh, really? And then he's like, oh, yeah, really? Like, why? Is that? And I found myself, like, I'd sort of bought into this stereotype mm. that I'd driven friggin' 1,200 kilometres to to challenge like and then I had to explain you know there's this whole narrative around about blue collar workers love coal and it seemed to be genuinely news to him that this was meant to be a you know this dominant hegemonic you know near consensus position there's certainly a lot of argument up there but that's the thing that you find when you go to these areas is a pretty vigorous argument the problem of one of the problems of course is that one side of their argument has heavy backing from some of the most powerful institutions in our society including the Murdoch press and all the rest of it and the rest of it, you know, um, you know, it's a decent coal worker, rural fire brigade guy, retired coal miner who was just like, you know, had spent 28 years in the industry. He'd had workmates killed next to him. For him, the idea that you'd romanticise this um, industry, it's, exactly. he's serious. And he's just like, oh, no, 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 it's all going to change. No, it's all going to end. Like, it's a most matter of fact, there's no political force out there which is finding these people cohering them, giving them the arguments they need to sway people around them and turning them into some sort of a political force that can point away. The, the, the field is wide open for One Nation and One Nation got 21% of the vote up in the Hunter. And I've got to say, not just on a platform of, of climate change denial, um, which is definitely part of it, but also on a, like it's, and it's shameful for the Labor Party for me to be able to say this, on a class basis. Which is the party that has been banging on in the pages of the Newcastle Herald in Parliament and anywhere they can about the cancer of casualisation in the coal industry? Like half of the nation's coal mine workers are now on casual contracts, something like that. It's been one nation. It's been it's been Malcolm Roberts, who was a disgraceful racist, who talks about um, you know the World Economic Forum is about to introduce world communism. Like it's this hallucinatory sort of stuff. They've been the ones making the running on casualisation. Mm. So anyway, so to me that was quite a, like an education in a bunch of ways. Like first, yeah, sort of blow up the stereotype, but also just, you know, there's people around who, you know, know exactly what's going on, um, but the mainstream, you know, there's, like there's no one around to organise them. So to me, like, yeah, what, what Saga says and, and, and more so, we need a working class movement and you actually need... Um, like an organisation within that, um, with the politics to find those people, link them up and fight back. So anyway, yeah. it's a pretty urgent one, eh? It's pretty urgent. Um, yeah. Liam, do you want to follow on from that? Yeah, that's, um, and that is an eye isn't it? It's, um, I think one of the threads that runs through all of those contributions there is uh, that, you know, we're in, we're in this period of kind of brutal class war, going back to right, right to what Louise, what Louise started with about, you know, at the moment the pandemic hit and the crisis hit, you know, all of these big corporations and small businesses, all of them, 
you know, the capitalist class as a whole kind of lined up uh, against us and was about trying to, you know, on one hand, trying to resist any attempt to hamper their profits or, or, or have lockdowns, you know, because the holy kind of, the holy, you know, all that's sacred is business and their profits and you can't threaten that in any way. Uh, but also in terms of the economic devastation that was being uh, caused, there was really concerted, deliberate attempts uh, by, by employers to shift the burden of that onto workers. You know, like massive layoffs across all, you know, a whole range of sectors, probably some of the biggest layoffs in Australian history, you know, like just, de- and not just here, you know, but like decimation of, uh, of whole sections of the working class. And in, you know, confronted with this, the organizations that we would look to, that people, you know, that workers would hope would defend them, our unions, you'd have to say, have been appalling, like abysmal response across the board. The fact that you can say, you know, we've had some of the biggest mass sackings in the history of the planet. And what's, like, what has been the response? You can't name, you can't name the big working class, you know, resistance to the pandemic. It's just, it's not happening. The unions are not, you know, they've sort of vacated the playing field. Worse than that, uh, in a whole range of sectors, like you think about a country like Australia, where even though our union movement is at record, you know, record low membership numbers and, you know, record low uh, levels of industrial action and has been just gutted over the decades uh, and is, you know, still in a, in a free fall. Notwithstanding that, this this kind of relative strength of the union movement here in the sense that there's at least some traditions of unionism, there are some sectors that are very well unionized. And in those sectors, uh, still, the, there's been not, not just an appalling response or not just a lack of response, but the unions like our own, the NTU, have led... Uh, you know, this kind of class collaboration, we're all in it together, business partnership, you know, ramming through uh, pay cuts, you know, deals that would see historic pay cuts up to 15% imposed on workers. And that's not coming, that's not coming from the bosses. There isn't a vice chancellor in this country who said, I want to give my workers a 15% pay cut. It came from our own union's national executive, you know, and they sold it to the employers. And so in the midst of that, like this scandalous debacle, uh, it's no coincidence that uh, the biggest rank and file rebellion in the history, you know, or not in the history, biggest rank and, rank and file rebellion in many years, uh, oh. has, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, biggest rank and file rebellion in many years in oh, this we're country. We're not finished yet. Oh. We're not finished yet, that's true. Um, but it's no coincidence that that's happened uh, in the NTU, which is a union in which we have, you know, a small but kind of, you know, hardy little cluster of revolutionary socialists uh, who have come into that situation with a particular... Um, perspective, you know, an orientation that says we are for class struggle, not for class collaboration. We are for organizing workers to stand up for themselves, you know, that every single member of a union can be an activist and we're going to help, you know, it's, it's part of our job is to try to make them uh, and that we're for, you know, we'll support the officials of the union only insofar as they act in our interests. And if they don't, well, we act independently of them and we organize workers to do that. And, you know, we've given in what we've been doing in the NCU this year, what revolutionary socialists have done in that union this year, uh, which I won't go through all the details. There is an episode or two about it that people should listen to. Uh, but the fact that we've been able to make such a splash and actually, you know, not change history, but make a little dint in history, you know, an important little dint in history. Uh, and that I think is a testament to the organization and the politics of revolutionary socialism, you know, and if we wanted to actually really make history and go beyond just dinting it, uh, then we need more revolutionary socialists. We need a bigger organization and we just need to, you know, why you should be a revolutionary socialist this year is because we need more people who are doing things like that. Uh, so that's my reason this year. Mm. And I think that's the difference between being a revolutionary socialist kind of in theory and in practice is you can't just be one on your own. So that's kind of why we're 
all part of an organization, Socialist Alternative, that people know makes Red Flag Newspaper, makes this podcast, makes the Marxist Left Review, puts on conferences every year. Um, that There are some coming up as well, the Revolution Conference um, and Marxism 2021 that's coming up that people should check out um, the website for. You know, you can't be, a, it's an oxymoron to be an individual socialist. So you have to be organized. And that's, you know, what Liam's talking about that none of us could be the active union members that we are or the active student um, comrades that we are without other people around us. Um, so that's part of the recurring themes of all of the Red Flag Radio episodes, you know, how do you get organized and what is the best way to organize and then what do you do when you're organized? And so, you know, listening back to some of the episodes um, and people can maybe reflect on what they've got out of some of these episodes. But um, for me, it just is hearing those same things over and over again. And if I had to uh, give a really quick reason to be a revolutionary socialist in 2020, I'd just say that I I could give you three words um, as my reason. Biden, Harris, Albanese. Like literally, this is the, you know, other team, the progressive team of running capitalism. Biden and Harris, you know, like this disgusting Democrat politician and Joe Biden. No, but both of them uh, literally have been responsible for some of the worst attacks on working class people, racism, you know, locking up and killing prisoners like um, Kamala Harris. And that's the thing that people are supposed to be happy about in 2020. I mean, that for me is just, uh, yeah, just the most depressing American election kind of in history and the coverage in red flag, I, I have to say of the American election and all of the debates around it has just been, I think um, fantastic and a credit to the paper, but people should read that. And we have been trying, let me tell you to put some red flag radio episodes together with some American comrades, but it's a very tricky and very um, fast paced situation in the U S and people have, yeah, so we're, we're still going to be trying to get some American socialists to come on and talk about the situation there. But um, yeah, Biden-Harris and then Albanese. I mean, if we're supposed to be uh, placing our hope in the opposition in Australia, then the pandemic, climate change, the gas-led recovery, you know, not even committing to a much higher new start or whatever, like this is the Labor Party alternative in Australia. So you got to think more ambitiously than that if you want to change the world and and obviously there's a million more things to say about that so let's just have a quick round of the episodes of red flag radio why not we're self we're being a bit indulgent because it's our one-year anniversary show we can do some humble bragging that's the thing, apparently, a humble brag. I don't really get how that's the thing, but apparently that's the thing. Um, but, yeah, let's talk about the episodes that have stood out to our guests today. Um, so let's start with Emma on this one. So probably my favourite is uh, it's by Fleur Taylor, or, and you guys as well, you're in, <laughs> um, about the Tiananmen Square movement and the massacre that followed it. Um I just think it's a uh, – everyone should listen to it because it's a first-hand account 
Um, Flora was there as a young person who initially was like, you know, thought she was going to go visit communism and was all very excited about it and then um, got swept up in a mass movement of students and workers uh, for democracy against the economic inequality that defined this supposedly communist society um, and one in which, you know, workers and students had no real say, no democracy um, and as part of this movement massively radicalised, you know, workers formed their own independent trade unions and so on. Um, and then it was brutally crushed by the Chinese Communist Party. So I think it, there's a whole bunch of great lessons out of that, including that China is not fucking communist as a starting point, but also just about the beauty of struggle uh, and how, you know, people's ideas can really rapidly uh, change when they're involved in a mass movement like that, you know, millions of people involved um, in fighting back against a brutal regime in Tiananmen Square. Beijing. So yeah, highly recommend that. Yeah, we've had a few eyewitness kind of um, episodes and those stories are, yeah, incredible. Um, I think Liam wanted to talk about one of those as well, maybe. Hmm. Yeah, my favourite episode, oh, there's been a few, but the one that just comes to mind straight away is uh, the episode about Hazelwood with Naomi Farmer, the Hazelwood fire that is uh, with Naomi Farmer and Diane Fields, two revolutionary socialists. Uh, and Naomi herself was you know, comes from the valley uh, and and was a participant in this in this struggle there. And, you know, I just think it has everything. Like it ticks all the boxes. This is a, you know, a small working class town up against like a big multinational corporation who was poisoning their, poisoning their environment and covering it up in, you know, in, in secret collaboration with the government and the health, health officers and all this. And, you know, and then, the, yeah, these local activists there, you know, kind of blow the lid off this thing. Like it's, it's a Hollywood blockbuster. And yet, you know, it's, it's right here. It's got all of the drama and all of the intrigue and it's real. Um, and the story, I think, just, you know, you can't help but just see with anger when you hear the way that, uh, the, way that the, the working class community in the Valley has been treated, uh, you know, and was being treated. Uh, but then on the flip side, you know, this, this spine-tingling resistance and Naomi herself as evidence that, you know, the, 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 the big impact that one revolutionary socialists can have uh, in a struggle like that, you know, that just blew this thing open and, and made it into a scandal. And, and, and talking about blowing it open and making it into a scandal, one of the things that Diane said in the episode was she happened to be uh, over in Europe uh, when the fire was happening and it was all over the media here and she came back here expecting to, to kind of wade into this, uh, this big campaign and she was kind of met with silence. You know, she was in Sydney, not, not down here in Victoria. Um, and, yeah, comrades up in Sydney or just people in Sydney sort of unaware of this major scandal uh, that was happening down here in Victoria. So, um, yeah, I think it was a really important contribution uh, that Red Flag, the newspaper, and the uh, Revolutionary Socialist in Socialist Alternative made uh, to that struggle. Um, and that's been now documented in, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of kind of accounts and, and a book or two that's been published about uh, the campaign down there that, um, you know, really, really pay tribute, not just to Naomi, but even more, more so actually to her mum, you know, and to, to hear Naomi talk about the impact that this struggle had on her mum, you know, later in life coming to sort of political activism and coming to, into this kind of, you know, blossoming as, a, as, a, as an activist who was leading things and organising stuff and, and struggling. It's just, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about this all night. I'm smiling now and it just gets amazing. But yeah, people should go back and listen to that episode. It's beautiful. Yeah, definitely. And someone should make a documentary or something about it. Um, it's a story worth telling over and over again. Uh, Sagar. What's your pick? Uh, mine is 
Jerome Small talking about the crisis of industrial unionism in Australia. Um, so this was, first it was an intervention into what was happening in Australian politics at the time. So the um, Orwellian sounding ensuring integrity bill was being debated in parliament. And this was the response from the left and from the unions, from the Labour Party was appalling. This was a drastic attack on workers' rights and it should have been fought, and it should have been fought the only way these things can be fought, which is through industrial action, not through lobbying, not through uh, writing letters to your MP. Um, but the, part, the episode went beyond just the immediate issues. So it also went into how did we end up in this parlous state? Um, and it kind of went back to the prices and incomes accord in the 1980s, and went through some of the history of why after a period of, you know, a fair amount of radical militancy within the working class in the 70s, why things took a downturn and why we ended up with something like the Accord. And the importance of getting politics right was something that Jerome emphasized a lot. So the fact that it was only the left, it was only the Communist Party at the time, which could sell these militant workers to the idea of an accord, to saying, we're not going to push for higher wages um, because that's part of the bargain. Um, and then the other thing that I really like about the episode is Jerome's very good at picking, picking up anecdotes or historical little episodes, which are revealing about bigger political lessons. So all the stuff we talk about, about workers moving into struggle on their own, gaining confidence and gaining a class consciousness simply from being active, all those sorts of things. I mean, it's one thing to just read them in a list of abstract sorts of things that Marxists tend to repeat over and over. It's another thing to see it displayed in an anecdote that you went through, where you saw your colleagues, your co-workers change who they were to the result of you know, getting active in the workplace. Um, so listening to uh, some of the um, anecdotes, both from Jerome being an industrial organizer for Socialist Alternative, um, being active for you know many decades, and also from uh, Ross and Liam, was um, kind of those sorts of lessons are a real education for younger comrades like me to as something to aspire to and to learn from. Mm. Okay, Jeremy, you get to respond to that. How about that? Well, my winner for podcast of the year, if I can have a drum roll, please, and if that's possible, yep. is Liz Ross for the podcast and also the book that she was talking about on the podcast, which I've And Liz Ross is here with us in the live. It's like, oh, read this book, you know. Yeah. And then I actually sat down and read it. And like as someone that, that got involved in politics in the 1980s, you know, I was there, man. You know, I'm still getting over it it's like you sort of think oh like it's a book about the 80s what the hell am i gonna learn They're, like it is just it is just a fabulous book for both how we got here but the tradition of resistance and 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 like a lot of the detail like i just sort of like it had passed me by the scale of the resistance like the not just the heroic fight up at road river that graham haynes was involved with um, not just the, the it's got a fantastic account of the nurses dispute. It, it's got a brilliant chapter on the BLF getting smashed. Um, but also just like the sequel dispute. Like I, 
um, the South East Queensland Electricity Board, which Obioki Peterson was forcing all of the linesmen onto um, individual contracts. At the height of that dispute, I think this is before the linesmen actually got sacked, one million Queensland workers were either, because the electrical trade union had bans on everywhere. So once the electricians have bans on, like that's, that's a lot of production stops. One million workers either on strike, stood down, locked out as part of this dispute. So, and you know, like, I think it was about the same time that there was a whole bunch of bans um, that, again, Liz talks about in the public service with multiple billions of dollars worth of revenue being held up. So that's the scale of stuff that was happening. That, and that puts a light on the scale of the sellout that had to be organised. And, and just the, the, I think it's one of the early chapters going through each of the versions of the accord and how you sort of, you know, go deeper and deeper into the rings of hell. Oh, this time it's just a little productivity bonus. And then, you know, next time, oh, it's just a little step towards enterprise bargaining and, and so on. So, um, like, all of that is great. But then the, the the other side of it as well, like just that tradition of resistance that the book sort of documents and uh, as Sagar referred to, like the, the fact that the officials have their own politics. They have a politics, a very well-developed and coherent politics of class compromise. And if you're going to take them on and succeed in, in, you know, you can have eruptions, but to actually overcome them, you need rank and file organisation founded on a different set of politics. And it's just such a credit to, you know, to Liz who, you know, spent untold hours and days and weeks and months on picket lines and so on, that even when you weren't going to win, you bloody well stuck at it and you built that tradition of resistance. So, um, yeah, I just love that. You know, it's, it's a lovely um, podcast episode, but definitely people should read the book. It's really good. Yeah. Red Flag Books is where you go to get these type of books. Um, another fantastic. I mean, the Red Flag Global Empire is getting pretty impressive. So, Louise, you get to have the final pick. Um, okay, well, my pick is um, Ben Hillier, Life from Hong Kong. And oh, yeah. Second, um, second to that, Ben Hillier, a couple months later, Live from Carlton, um, about his experience being part of the uh, Hong Kong uprising. Um, and, it, I mean, it was just so wonderful that he was there and all his dispatches, including the Red Flag podcast, have been incredible. But it was almost an accident. Like I remember the day... We decided to send him because he was sent as a reporter for Red Flag and um, I was walking back to the office after having been at a picket line early in the morning and walked past a um, travel agent and saw, oh, you can get to Hong Kong back for like $600 or something because of the protests, like no one wanted to go there. And um, and we just said in our meeting, oh, maybe someone should go there. And the next day Ben was there and the um, benefits of it have just been incredible. Like. His ability to um, uh, connect with people and find a way in in this place he's never been to before and knows n virtually nothing about. Um, but then just having someone with the, that political perspective reporting on it because mainstream journalism, insofar as they pay attention to sort of the ordinary people that are involved in um, struggles and uprisings, it's sort of um, maybe you'll get why why you're here and you'll get the pretty obvious reason that I want to be how a place dominated by China, a repressive, undemocratic uh, superpower, fairly you know obvious stuff, or it's just a matter of are they violent or not? Whereas Ben, you just um, so many of the stories he told and the way he connected with people, the individuals he described, you just got a feeling of what it was like to be part of that struggle and 
you know, how it was changing people's ideas, how it was, um, you know, transforming people and opening their eyes to things and the, the kind of um, changes that were taking place at that level that you, it's so hard ordinarily to get a feel for. Um, and also like the contradictions as part of it, like, you know, when you're fighting a major, the threat of a major superpower like China, it's hardly surprising that people feel, well, the only power that can really counter that is another superpower. So, you know, some had illusions in America, as you'd expect, but just trying to understand like how that, how, how that in and of itself is an expression of the struggle and people's, um, uh, you know, desperation to win, but also a sense of what a huge, um, what a huge task was ahead of them. And, you know, even like Ben talking about, you know, people feeling that, you know, even if they probably can't win, they want to resist anyway. It's about just the personal um, kind of dignity and feeling that, you know, to not resist is just um, is, um, just the ultimate humiliation. And so, you know, trying to understand, you know, what motivates people. And, okay, the struggle, you know, obviously uh, didn't succeed in that round, but the experience you get a sense of how profound it was from Ben's journalism and that experience will never go away. Like those predominantly young people who are going to be dealing with this issue of Chinese domination of Hong Kong for their entire lives that will pass on the experience to their children and, you know, who, who their, their concerns are never going to be mitigated. Like so it's going to come back in some way or another um, and, you know, the, the struggle is going to go on and, you know, this having that kind of long-range view is important that you see, like, you know, th these are people who are, might have to accept sort of a temporary defeat now, but they're going to be opponents and find some way to resist China in the future. And that goes to struggles all around the world. I mean, look what's happening in Thailand that the regime thought it would put people down, but they're not because the system can't resolve the grievances that are generating so many of these struggles. And, you know, just getting that sense of, you know, what, what what's motivating people on the ground that really you can only get from kind of socialist journalism because that's what we think matters. Um, and so, yeah, I can't recommend enough like the podcast, but also all like Ben's got a book about his experience as well. Um, so it's just a, mm. it's a joy to read. And that's also available in Red Flag Books. Um, and I remember Liam recording that episode when we had got Ben on the phone from Hong Kong. Like we were sort of hud hunched around a phone in your spare bedroom where you are now, aka Red Flag Recording Studio, which I haven't been in for months. Um, yeah, and just looking at each other as he was telling these stories and being like, fucking hell, this is incredible. It was um, a technical triumph as well. <laughs> yeah, plugging in a mobile phone to something or other. Um, yeah, but that's, I mean, we started off the podcast and we use the sort of same introduction over and over again that people might have got bored with, but we said, you know, this is a product, this is a podcast that would, where we talk about history, theory, and activism with people who are participants in the struggle. And when we say that, we mean it. And you can hear that today from the people who've been talking about their experiences. You can hear it through the episodes. This is not a podcast for just pontificating and running commentary about politics and you know, who has the wittiest kind of summary of something that's happened in the world, although obviously we try to do that too a bit. But, you know, it's actually to say, where are the people doing stuff? Let's talk to those people. And 
you know, being a revolutionary socialist means being an activist. And so everyone who comes on here who's revolutionary socialists are activists. Most of the time they're engaged in the activism and struggles they're talking about, or they're the people who care the most about hearing the voices of the people who were involved in historic struggles to be able to keep on retelling those stories so those lessons from history um, don't get lost. And we're the people who want to continue those traditions of you know, the storytelling of the socialist movement that's so vital for maintaining the lessons that were learned that don't need to be learned um, over and over again, although there's benefit in learning them over and over again. But, you know, all of those things, um, hopefully uh, we're trying to get into this podcast and improve it every step of the way. And so I just wanted to thank every guest who's been on um, the 50 episodes that we've recorded so far the people who support us on Patreon that you can also join if you wish, um, patreon.com, Red Flag Radio Podcast if you want to do that. Subscribe to Red Flag Newspaper. I mean, it's a non – there's no ads in Red Flag except for other <laughs> socialist stuff that you should be going to or getting involved in, but there's no paid ads, so you don't have to scroll, you know, scroll past all sorts of shit or flick past whatever in the paper. You just get the good content, again, written by people who are as close to these struggles as they possibly can be, if not part of them. And so your $50 every six months for that newspaper is just a bargain, really, to get something delivered to your door, which I think is still a very, it seems quite a novel thing to have a newspaper come in the post. Um, But the design of it, the look of it, everything about it, anyway, if you haven't already got the subscription, you should definitely do that. And that also helps with things like the podcast and everything else that we do um, because we're all working together. So, yeah, um, we appreciate all of the support. It's been a joy to work with Liam for a year on this podcast. Um, So thank you, Liam. And I just wanted to give an opportunity for the people who've joined us on the live show tonight to win one of the special – specially designed mugs that Red Flag has been giving away with the recent subscription drive. And the question that you have to answer in the chat to win one of these mugs is, what is the phrase that we use to close the Red Flag Radio podcast every episode? We say the same thing at the end of every episode because it applies to every episode. And Phoebe from Adelaide got in there first but everyone is saying it it's a joy to see because it is uh, you're listening to Red Flag Radio we have a world to win <laughs>